0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm CJ, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Earl Wright II about his new book, Jim Crow Sociology The Black and Southern Roots of American Sociology. Well, welcome to our channel here, uh, Dr. Wright.
1: Uh, well, thank you for the invitation, CJ. I'm glad to be here.
0: Great. So I was wondering if you can start us off by telling us a bit about yourself, um, how you you know, came into sociology and how you became interested in, in this sort of overlooked uh, uh, history, if you will.
1: Sure, sure. I am a, a native Southerner, born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, I've always taken great pride in being a Southerner. I can remember as a child uh, watching television and listening to the jokes that uh, people from outside the South would make of us with the idea that we were less intelligent, less educated based upon uh, the way that we spoke, our dialect. So um, I became interested at a young age in pushing back against these stereotypes. And as a young person, maybe of the age of eight or nine, I remember looking at my grandmother's bookshelf, and it appeared to me to be thousands of books on this shelf, but maybe it was only about 10 or 15. And there were two that really jumped out at me. One was Roots by Alex Haley. I um, began to open that and try to read it at this young age. Uh, Didn't know many of the words, but still tried to pronounce them. But what turned me off is that the book was uh, about a thousand pages long. Plus, the movie Roots was about to be released. So I figured I'd just wait until the the television series came out. The other book was this interesting piece written by a man with a funny name and published in 1897. And it was The Philadelphia Negro by W.E.B. Du Bois. And as a young person of less than 10 years of age, for some reason, that book really attracted my attention. I was drawn to it like a moth to a flame. And again, I couldn't pronounce most of the words, didn't really know what I was reading or how to interpret it, but I was fascinated by the maps that Du Bois drew. So that was always in my mind um, throughout my adolescence. And when I was in uh, undergraduate school and then graduate school, which is interesting because I only, it was by happenstance that I entered sociology When I graduated with a bachelor's degree, I simply wanted to be a high school teacher and coach high school football if I was doing what I really wanted um, at that time, which was my passion. Um, So I had every intention of applying to the education program at the University of Memphis, but I had taken one sociology course prior to graduating. And it was by a professor by the name of Elizabeth Higginbotham, who's now at the University of Delaware. And I guess she saw something in me that I didn't see it in myself at the time. And she encouraged me, uh, pushed me, uh, literally made me apply to the MA program at the University of Memphis. And, you know, just to appease her, I said, OK, I'm going to do this to get this woman off my back. Had no intention of going into the program. Well, I was accepted into the education program and the sociology program. And sociology is the only one that offered money. So, here I go into the sociology program, and when I entered the program, my focus initially was on urban sociology, um, the African-American barbershop, and there is very little literature on the African-American barbershop, so I had to expand my interest into urban sociology in general, which is what my advisor encouraged me to do, and as I was doing that, I came across this research about the Chicago School of Sociology and how they were the first to engage in serious urban sociological studies and investigations. And for the duration of my MA career, uh, I just felt uncomfortable, uneasy with what I was reading about Chicago. Eventually, I understood that my discomfort with what I was reading stemmed from my grandmother's bookshelf. I thought back to that book by William Edward Burkhardt Du Bois, The Philadelphia Negro and began to wonder, why is Chicago giving credit for producing works in the 1920s when Du Bois did the same thing more than 20 years earlier? So I get engaged in more research on Du Bois, moving beyond his Philadelphia works, and I saw that he was employed at Atlanta University, a historically Black college. Again, looking at my Southern roots, my Southern pride, um, that, that, that kind of made me feel um inspired to know that this Southern all-Black institution was conducting works equal to, if not greater than, the Chicago School. So I began to question, why are they are not receiving their deserved recognition and credit? And that has been my motivation uh, since 1997, trying to figure out where not only early Black sociologists fit in the discipline, in their contributions, but historically Black colleges and institutions that have been greatly overlooked despite their contributions um, institutionally to the discipline.
0: That's really fascinating. Um, And I I, I think that's particularly interesting that you had such an early, you know, uh, interaction with Du Bois and that that had such a powerful influence on you later on. It's, yeah, that's just really fascinating. So um, talking about this book specifically, um, how did you come about writing it? What uh, sort of influenced you to write? one that focused not just on Du Bois, but on uh, especially historically black colleges and universities during uh, you know the, the early 20th century basically. Um, so yeah, what what interests you in, in going in that direction? and um, how did you come across sort of the the, the myriad of of uh, archival, uh, work that uh, you use as your as your data for this
1: The majority of the data that I use in this book, uh, Jim Crow Sociology, is what I discovered literally more than two decades ago in the mid1990s when I found out what was going on with Fisk University, with Tuskegee University and Howard University. But at the time, the early 2000s, I was singularly focused on making sure that W.E.B. Du Bois received all the recognition um, and credit for many of the advances he made um, as possible. So while I had this other data on the other HBCUs, it was imperative to me that my first series of articles and books focused on debunking the Chicago School, which was not the first American School of Sociology. It was in fact the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory that Du Bois led. Now, at the time, I had no idea that I would be writing on the Atlanta laboratory for a solid 15 years. But what happened was uh, no one had mined that area before. No one had gone through the Atlanta University studies and publications to see exactly what their significance was to the discipline. So in many ways, I was consumed by making sure that I could produce every piece of research uh, data on the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory that I could to the expense of the other schools. And it was only within the last five years that I reached a point of saturation. And I said, okay, I'm content with what I've published on Du Bois in the Atlanta Laboratory. But I also knew that there were other schools engaged in similar works because what, we, what was taking place in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, were quote unquote Negro conferences at the well-resourced HBCUs around the country. So Hampton Institute had yearly conferences where they focused on Blacks in industry. Atlanta University with Du Bois focused on the study of Blacks in urban areas, but also small towns, rural towns in Georgia. Tuskegee had annual conferences where they focused on rural sociology and those types of issues. So what I thought was, hmm, Surely Du Bois and Atlanta were not the only ones to make significant contributions to the discipline. I know they had made those contributions, but no one had ever articulated them and provided a comparative study um, that we have now with this book, Jim Crow Sociology. So the transition was quite logical because, for example, Tuskegee University, they've not been given credit for their sociological works, primarily because Washington, Booker T. Washington, that is was considered to be um, an opponent of liberal arts education, which he wasn't. He was a supportive of sociology and liberal arts when it suited him. So there's that one little caveat there. But they were engaged in those rural sociological works decades before there was even a thing called the Rural Sociological uh, Society. Um, So again, the impetus for these things is making sure that HBCUs historically Black colleges and universities, received their deserved recognition to make sure those um, who engaged in these works from the South received their proper recognition and to provide a more holistic um, image of how the discipline really emerged. Because what we often find ourselves doing in sociology, uh, similar to American history, is offering this rose-tinted um, uh, depiction of how we came into being. And we want to talk about um, the first course being taught at Harvard, uh, um, Yale, I'm sorry, and these other fanciful um, origin stories. But for some reason, we don't talk about Henry Hughes and George Fitzhugh, who were the first to write books with sociology in the title. And their works are under the this, um, I guess, the, the title of Sociology of the South, they were wielding the discipline of sociology as a tool to validate slavery, to validate segregation, to validate inequality. But we don't talk about those individuals when we look at the origins of the discipline. So what I want to do is put all these pieces together to show that um, we are excluding a lot from this narrative or this fantasy that we develop in many graduate programs about how we emerge. And that also includes uh, members of the LGBTQ community also, because what we have at Atlanta University with Du Bois were the activities of one of the first public sociologists, Augustus Granville Deal, a black man who, who was openly queer and an early sociologist um, at Atlanta University. But he does not receive his uh, deserved recognition for being an early public sociologist through his works during the Harlem Renaissance in New York City. So I just see my work as filling in the gaps. I'm putting together the pieces of this puzzle to make sure we have a more holistic perception of the discipline.
0: Yeah, I like the way that you frame that. I think that, you know, uh, just even thinking of the title, Jim Crow Sociology, I think it's important here that uh, these weren't just, as you point out a lot in your book, it's not the case that the... Black sociologists during this time were doing work that was less rigorous, right? In fact, you, you, you you know, uh, um, state that they actually were doing more rigorous work than the white sociologists at the time. And that this wasn't, you know, just happenstance that, that uh, the key to the development of black sociology was the segregation of black folks and white folks in education. Um, so I think that's really important for, for people to understand, right, is that this, this wasn't uh, um, a mistake or, or this wasn't just – these weren't just overlooked figures exactly as much as it, uh, they were purposely marginalized, right, and, uh, and that they also had to deal with segregation on, on numerous levels, right, uh, in terms of their participation, in terms of funding, Etc. Um, so I had to talk about that more, but I also wanted to see if you could tell us a bit more about the principles of black sociology as you list them out in your introduction. So what are the, when you look back at black sociology, what are the principles that, that define it?
1: When we look at black sociology, um, and it really goes back to what I was saying about the early sociology of the South, Um, works, and how they use the discipline as a tool to hold people down, to validate inequality. The primary focus of Black sociology, as I view it, is to be a liberatory um, discipline, to help individuals um, overcome the inequities that exist in a society, but using the scholarly method, the scientific method, rather, and developing policy. It's not good. It's, it's the scholar activist notion of W.E.B. Du Bois that he um, uh, promoted. Um, the idea that we should not just engage in works to have nice articles or nice books to say, I, you know, I've written 27 articles in 38 books. That's, that's fine. That's dandy. But what is your research doing to help society? and through the Du Boisian, the black sociology lens, that is what the purpose of research should be. What is its utility in the larger society? If you're simply engaging in those works for self-aggrandizement, then you're not doing the world, the science, any justice. Um, And it, it should also ideally be interdisciplinary. One of the things that we have, that I lament that we have done today is to become so focused uh, on our own little disciplinary silos. When you look at the history of academia in general, especially when Du Bois and the Atlanta Laboratory were in his heyday, it was there was really no difference between political science and sociology, or social work and sociology, or any other number of disciplines in sociology. So we should use the the, the techniques and theories. Of these other disciplines, to make um, to come up with the best policy recommendations. Again, which is the primary aim of Black sociology, um, to make lives better for those who are um, experiencing difficulties.
0: Yeah, and so I, th- I think that that's such an important point. Thinking about the, uh, I would say the the overlap between these different fields as we see them now um, at that time, because for them, they were not just interested in the findings, but as you point out, they were also interested, if possible, using these findings for social policy implications, right?
1: Exactly. And, you know, to put our um, Carl Mannheim sociology of knowledge head on and teleport ourselves back to the 1890s and early 1900s, during... That period, you know, white people literally believe, many white people literally believe blacks had tails, that black men could not control their urges sexually, that they were dangerous, that black women um, were these tots who were just desirous of sex all the time. So you're, you're trying to challenge these um, beliefs that individuals have, but do it in a way that um, can be defended through the scientific method. That's why in going back to your previous reference to the methods, um, they had to be overly rigorous because they wanted to make sure that their research could not be um, pushed back against. They wanted to make sure that whenever they presented their findings, if anyone attempted to replicate it, they would basically find the same things. And they knew that white America would be distrusting of any data coming from black scholars. Under the assumption that, well, they simply want the black community to look good. So they're not going to uncover all the faults, all, all, all the unkind things. So when you talk about, for example, I've mentioned three of these um, methodological advances uh, insider researcher, a method section, and the limitations. These were all developed, if not by Du Bois himself, then surely prior to his arrival at Atlanta University. And these methods were not developed because they were sitting back and saying, hmm, how can I make an impact on the discipline? Let me come up with this creative methodology that's going to be used forever from henceforth. And I'm going to be worldwide, uh, known worldwide and and just receive all this adulation. No, it was literally, in many cases, life or death. They had to come up with these uh, methodologies. Survival. So when you talk about insider researcher. This was something that became popular in the mid 1990s the idea that uh, the researchers should share some characteristics with the subject. That way you will elicit uh, more uh, rich data. Well, this is something that Atlanta university had to do. Even the most well-intentioned white sociologists would not gather accurate data in most cases from black folks living in rural Mississippi, rural Alabama, rural Tennessee, You know, they're asking them, well, how much income do you have, um, your household income? How much is that? How much wealth do you have? How much land do you have? This is an era when Black families, Black men, Black women were lynched, literally because a white person may want their land or may want something from them. Mm -hmm. So Even the most well-intentioned white researcher can get that information. So the insider um, researcher was something that was born out of necessity for Atlanta University. Uh, a method section. Du Bois and Atlanta knew they needed to um, identify exactly how data were collected, from whom they were collected, how much was collected, and put it in writing because white sociologists would be skeptical of these uh, such things. But also, not only that, the limitations. They wanted to make sure that the reader was aware because of the paucity of money that Atlanta University has the study is deficient in ways X, Y, and Z. If we had more money, then we could have conducted more a national study as opposed to a more local study. So these are all things that because of the way the research would be um, read, accepted, or not by mainstream white sociologists, they had to engage in.
0: Right, yeah. So you do talk about this in terms of Du Bois and some of these issues around objectivity and uh, his sort of response, in a sense, to Weber's notion of value neutrality and his um, discussion of car window sociology. So I was wondering if you could unpack that a bit. How, how did Du Bois see, um, like, from his point of view, what sociology should be like and, and um, how to create objective research? I mean, you already just talked about some of those methodological implications, but um, from, a, from more of an abstract level, how did he um, think of his intervention in this regard to sociology?
1: Yeah, Du Bois believed that research should be liberatory, but objective. And one of the things that he really discouraged um, scholars from doing, at least in his early years, was from being proactive with the data. Because when we talk about Du Bois, we often forget he lived to be 95 years of age. And there are different periods of Du Bois because he evolved. Um, In his early years, he simply thought it was good enough to collect the data, present the data, and then essentially throw your hands back and say, okay, interested parties will use this um, to promote whatever agenda or address whatever policy that they have. But he soon began to find, especially after the death of Sam Hose, who was lynched um, unjustly in Atlanta, Georgia, and that is what pushed him from being this uh, detached, objective scholar to the one who was more proactive in pushing his works. He later saw that you needed to be um, assertive with the work. So the scholar should take that research and do something with it in a proactive manner. And it, it, it was really a challenge. Because what he saw with those engaged in Carl Winder's sociology were fanciful tales of life in black communities by so-called scholars and sociologists who did not engage in rigorous methodology to ascertain uh, what was taking place in those communities. And that reminds me of this study that um, I recently published with a colleague, um, Kalasia OJ at the University of Louisville, And we compared the Atlanta University studies between 1895 and 1917 with articles written in the American Journal of Sociology. And it's interesting because AJS and the Atlanta studies both began in 1895. and 1917 is when the um, Atlanta laboratory ended. We must have read close to 1,000 AJS articles. Of those 1,000 articles, barely 7% identify any type of methodology. And we were stretching what it means by methodology. For example, we gave them credit if they simply said something like um, these are observations that I made um, during a trip last summer in Europe. And this is at the same time when the Atlanta Laboratory was going detail by detail by detail articulating their methodology. So this whole idea of be, du Bois wanted. Du Bois promoted the idea that you can be objective while also pushing for these social policy changes, which was the spear point uh, the tipping point for his scholar activist or activism notion that is pushed now primarily in a lot of Black studies programs, but increasingly in departments of sociology. So when you look at the early discipline, AJS, it wasn't until 1912 when W.I. Thomas articulated the first or included the first methods section. Prior to that, they had nothing. Atlanta had been doing that for years. So the idea that um, you can be objective without stating where you um, produce your data from or you collect your data from um, is a misnomer.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And so he was also, as you point out, Reacting to not just the boys, but many of these black sociologists were uh, reacting to the racism and eugenics and the work of these white sociologists, many of them um, you know, who, who, as you just pointed out, almost certainly did not include any sort of method, right. Uh, not, not that even if they did, that would make any sense. But uh, so, so the scientific racism and eugenics of this time and and Du Bois in particular, I mean, you point out like uh, his 1906 study on health and physique of the Negro American that um, here he seems to be reacting to um, this idea of inherent differences between races in regard to health outcomes. It's sort of an early... Epidemiology, health disparities research, um, which is just another another case showing how advanced Du Bois was in his work, because uh, it's still an issue that we see in today's you know uh, health research. So I was wondering if you wanted to speak um, at all about those uh, contrasts in any more detail, or, or would you like to move on?
1: Well, uh, let me say this: uh, that really speaks again to the importance of interdisciplinary work and what Du Bois was doing every year. They focused on 10 topics and um, 10 total topics, one different topic per year. Each of those 10 topics are now considered separate disciplinary areas. So when you look at the Health and Physique of the Negro study of 1906, that was arguably the first scholarly scientific study to rebuke uh, the idea of the biological and intellectual inferiority of Blacks. There's no credit for that, that's given anywhere. And I believe uh, George Montahue, at the time, Dr. George Montahue at Howard University, he acknowledges that Du Bois placed before their hands information needed to challenge or debunk what was taking place at the time regarding um, the notions of differences in health outcomes for blacks and whites, but we were not prepared to take it. Have they accepted that data in 1906? One, one can reasonably ask, Would the 1932 Tuskegee syphilis study had happened? Probably would have, but at least there would have already been data on the front end. Um, And really extending it beyond the health and physique study of 1906 with Du Bois, I'm thinking about the ways in which at Fisk University, their Department of Sociology was proactive in pushing back against the scientific racism of the time and also just the outright racism of the time where Charles S. Johnson established the Race Relations Institute. And they are another unit that don't receive their deserved recognition, especially in applied sociology. But what they would actually do would um, travel to different cities around the country at their invitation and simply seek answers to the questions posed by the members of that community. And one study I'm thinking about uh, was conducted in Minneapolis. There was this idea that during the great black migration, the idea that uh, in Minneapolis, uh, the value of white homeowners, their home value would decrease to such an extent that, you know, they'll be in poverty. They, they, they won't have any wealth invested. So Johnson and Fisk scholars were um, asked to conduct this study and they, the result was a pamphlet called What to do if a Negro becomes your neighbor. And one of the main or the main finding that they came up with is that your home, the value, the wealth of your home, your home value will not decrease. So the ways in which from the beginning, black sociologists and black social scientists have used um, these disciplines as a counter to the, the obstacles facing them, both a direct threat to their body and also financial and other ways is a very understudied under research and under-appreciated uh, area of inquiry.
0: Absolutely. And thinking about the situation in the history of sociology, where you talked about the Chicago school being seen as the first uh, sociology school, and actually you make a very compelling case that, act- that it's uh, Atlanta, that uh, should be considered the first school of sociology. So I was wondering um, if you could talk about, especially how you use uh, Martin Bulmer's 1984 article, uh, his nine criteria for what makes up a sociological school. Um, how, how do you uh, use this? And, and, and why do you feel like these criteria are, are compelling reasons?
1: First, let me give credit to um, Sean L. Gabadon, who in 1997 published what I believe is the first attempt at identifying the sociological significance of the Atlanta laboratory. And what he attempted to do was to make the argument that Atlanta university was a school of sociology, but he stopped short of saying they were the first. And I, uh, I believe he focused on the lack of theory is why they didn't um, um, qualify as a school. What I did instead, I took up that mantle Mm -hmm. and I made the argument that not only did Atlanta fulfill all the criteria, but again, they are the first American school. And some of the criteria are such, um, the dominating personality of the scholar. Of course, that would be Du Bois. Uh, the, The scholar must have a vision Du Bois had the idea for a 100-year course of study on the American Negro. One of the things he lamented um, later in life is that he was not able to carry out that 100-year course of study. If he had, he argues that he would have developed an economic theory um, on Black Americans that other racial and ethnic groups new to the United States could use as a way to ease their transition into this society. Now, the place where Uh, Gavadon was hung up is a criteria that suggests um, an institution must have adequate infrastructure. And the argument I make is very simple. The University of Chicago had the backing of the Rockefeller family. Millions and millions and millions of dollars, uh, philanthropic gifts coming from everywhere, it's quite obvious and rational and reasonable rather that they would have adequate infrastructure and resources to carry out their agenda. Atlanta University, this small struggling black college near downtown Atlanta did not have overwhelming funds, nowhere near those of Chicago. In fact, Atlanta University is now a private school It became a private school in the late 1800s. It was a public school. State legislators took away funding from Atlanta University. Why? Well, there was a mandate given to the school. Stop accepting white students at Atlanta University. If you do not segregate or prevent white students from entering or being admitted to your campus, we're going to take your money from you. You will not receive state monies. They no longer receive state monies because Atlanta University refused to discriminate against white students who were primarily the children of the white faculty on staff. So when you look at this argument about adequate infrastructure and having philanthropic support, the argument I make is this. The Atlanta studies lasted roughly two decades. During that time, they produced the most important sociological works ever. Despite having meager funds, that they were able to make those contributions for two decades is more than enough uh, support for the argument that they had an adequate infrastructure. Given the challenges of the era, Jim Crow South uh, segregation, uh, Ku Klux Klan lynchings, they published their own data and materials, so they had a publishing outlet. And again, that they did this for two decades, that is strong philanthropic support. And that is why these schools must be acknowledged um, considering the adversity that they faced and the production um, that they made.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, something that is not usually talked about because the Atlanta Laboratory is, is so marginalized in most histories of sociology is that um, the actual violence Right, surrounding the school, the actual violence and threats of violence, right? That, that uh, these researchers themselves, um, you know, were were exposed to. Um, so that's so important to look back and and really consider the fact that yes, indeed, you know, this is the this is the first school of sociology, and I think otherwise is to to say otherwise is to neglect the evidence that you so uh, richly, you know. Develop in, in uh, very clear terms. So um, to to wrap up our, our bit about Atlanta University, I was wondering if you could just tell us about some of the other marginal figures of the school, including the uh, women that that were part of it. As um, and I know you already mentioned uh, Augustus Granville Dill, but um, if you wanted to say anything more about him as well, and and yeah, some of these other marginalized figures. Mm
1: -hmm. Sure. And I'll also make a connection with the previous point you just made, this idea of, um, uh, the liberatory nature of the discipline and the dangers of teaching the discipline prior to Du Bois's arrival, the person who introduced sociology at Atlanta university was a white professor by the name of Howard Hinks. Hinks was aware of the anger of local white residents in Atlanta, um, over the fact that, one, blacks be being educated, period. Um, it was believed that they were wasting space educating these people who are uh, biologically and intellectually inferior. But also the fear that if they become educated, then they will want to advance their rights. They'll want equal rights. They'll want to do all these things that uh, white Americans are allowed to do. Hanks acknowledges that he had to teach around sociology, meaning he would assign textbooks that did not uh, promote the scientific racism of the day. He would require textbooks or recommend textbooks um, that would not cause the local community to become suspicious of what he may be teaching them because there was literally the threat of physical violence that could be done to teachers who were subversive in their attempts to educate blacks, especially in areas that would empower them, um, and also Um, death could possibly befall students. So when you have that that kind of uh, interaction taking place, um, it makes for a very curious and interesting campus culture where you have individuals like Augustus granville Deal, again, a a Black queer man who was a student at Atlanta University under Du Bois and later a co-editor of a couple of the um, Atlanta publications with him, the, the works of individuals like that manipulated or navigating rather uh, that culture during that era. But Dill, as I said before, is a very unknown, little known figure who I hope will receive more credit as we go forth. But others, Lucy Laney, she was um, a visible presence at the early Atlanta University studies. She's largely known for being, for establishing rather the first public school. For black children in the state of Georgia, but she was uh, an early contributor to the Atlanta Studies. Again, prior to Du Bois's arrival, she was writing um, passages in the studies, uh, in the publications, focusing largely on the stereotypical uh, women's issues, because in the early years, there would actually be a women's meeting and a separate men's meeting, so the two would not meet together. Um, But her works are very important and she is overlooked. Um, It's painful that she's overlooked. Georgia Swift King is another person who in the early years made contributions in writing to the Atlanta University publications. And her works also focus on uh, what were considered, quote unquote, women's issues and parenting. And they were engaging in this notion of applied sociology again taking what you're, you're learning from within the, the ivory tower and making them practical and real in the lives of everyday people. So I would be very much pleased if we could have more works and uh, papers written on uh, figures like that. And then let alone persons like Ida B. Wells, whose works on lynching um, should denote her as an early sociologist. And the way that she used it in an applied manner to try to improve or impact the lives of people who were unjustly lynched and run out of their homes and towns as she was run out of uh, the very town of Memphis because of her activities. So these are just a few of the persons um, who deserve recognition with Atlanta. But if you go beyond Atlanta, um, you can talk about people like George Edmund Haynes at um, at Fisk University Um and Tuskegee has uh, um, a number of persons, uh, Monroe Nathan Work, who was really influential in establishing that sociology program, and the it's just so much rich history in these institutions that need to be explored, and those are just some of the few.
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so actually, why don't we move on to talk about Tuskegee and talk about the applied rural sociology um, that was happening there, the studies happening there, and um, you know, obviously, one of the one of the sort of key issues here um, would be the applied nature of this work and, and the difference and debate, if you will, between Washington um, and Du Bois. So if you wanted to speak upon the uh, on the development of the sociology studies at Tuskegee and, and some of this debate.
1: Sure. Um, People, people know uh, Booker T. Washington primarily through this ideological debate with Du Bois, technical education versus liberal arts education. One of the misnomers in academia is that Du Bois was adamantly against vocational education. He was not. And he says as much in The Souls of Black Folk, where he makes the argument that that liberal arts had its place, vocational education had its place. He just believes that liberal arts should come first, um, not at the expense of vocational, but it's hard to open a business if you don't know how to add, subtract, or read. So it's imperative that you get those basic uh, um, skills, and then you move into the area of vocational education. For Washington, he was simply using liberal arts as a tool to help him achieve whatever ends or goals that he wanted. And for him, it was about expanding this idea of vocational technical education um, to the masses. He wanted those people who had skills um, farming to use them as such. What he did is he offered what they call one day of practical sociology at Tuskegee University. Every summer, every spring rather, they would have a conference. And individuals would travel from as far as Texas and Michigan to attend those conferences. And he would simply present them with um, the data, the information, how to improve your farming skills, how to make sure your crops uh, don't die. um, What's the best time to plant your, your seeds and all these things? What he soon discovered was. It was a, a, a bit tedious for folks to travel from great distances to come to Tuskegee for once a year. This is when he began to take the show on the road, for lack of a better better expression. So he would have a caravan that he would, um, the school would send to far places to the West, as far as Arizona, to where they would teach farmers how to farm the best practices in, in that how to make sound business decisions. But when we look at the rural sociology literature, there is not one word mentioned about these early studies or these early conferences and meetings and these early practices, which started before Du Bois's um, for the Atlanta studies. The Atlanta conferences rather began in 1896. The Tuskegee um, conferences started in 1892. Rural sociology. Um, I think that was the the section was first established in ESA, I believe, in nineteen twelve, and it was some years later in the thirties when the rural sociological society um, emerged. Why is there no mention of Booker T. Washington and all these fanciful narratives about rural sociology? They were out there doing the work. So it, it it's. Again, I'm I'm hoping that people become more interested in it and learn from the book, all the ways in w- that Washington may have spoken ill against the liberal arts and sociology, but he used it um, at his leisure to push his agenda and his goals.
0: Yeah, and then there's also during this time. I don't know if you wanted to also speak on. The Negro Yearbook and, and anti lynching, um, but obviously this had to do with what you're talking about before the, and in, in part the contributions of Ida B. Wells and and some of the methodologies that she used um, to study lynching, and to and to as you say, uh, like as a liber- liberatory practice, right? Of uh, not simply reporting, right?
1: There was a huge void that came to be when Du Bois was forced to leave Atlanta University in 1910 um, because his strong rhetoric and the strong findings of the Atlanta University studies um, caused a lot of uh, philanthropic gifts to dry up. So there were some benefactors who literally said, as long as Du Bois is there and producing these works, we're not going to give you money. Now, keep in mind, I said before, they had already... Uh, lost money from the state of Georgia um, because of their stance on admitting white students. So Du Bois, in his uh, letter of resignation, to paraphrase him, says, um, before I will allow the university to be hurt more than it already is, I will resign so that she can live. When this occurred, the Atlanta laboratory ceased being that juggernaut it had been the previous decade. And eventually it ended. So there was this hole. There was this void. There was no place that one could get objective, uh, current data on blacks in America. And this is again, (coughs) when Tuskegee stepped in and Monroe Nathan work stepped in with a Negro yearbook. Um, it was pretty much an encyclopedic accounting of life in black America Not necessarily the scientific uh, and methodologically sound rigorous studies that were conducted by Du Bois. But it was something that you could put your hands on and say, these are the ways that black people are experiencing life today. And one of the most prominent features was lynching. Uh, They would list specifically where people would be lynched. uh, What was the cause of the lynching? often how many people were in attendance at the lynchings. And we would see, if you go through that record, you will see that lynchings took place as far north as Oregon and New Hampshire, and that all of the lynchings did not take place in the south, as we are often led to believe. And work in Washington and Tuskegee were very important during this period. Were it not for them, then this idea of Black sociology May not have been able to continue, at least until the period when Charles Johnson and uh, George Edmund Haynes showed up at Fisk University some years later.
0: Yeah, and could you tell us a bit about how the School of Sociology or or how sociology studies uh, came about at Fisk and and the influence of of um, not just Haynes, but I guess earlier on uh, Bethlehem Bethlehem House and the And then as well as the 1916
1: Nashville fire? Sure, sure. Fisk University was established um, as an institution that would promote change within the Nashville area. And their early presidents wanted to make sure that the relations between the school and the larger Nashville uh, town were, were, were cordial. That there would not be any problems. They want to have a, a workable relationship. So what they decided early on was to find ways Fist could help um, solve problems in the Fist in the Nashville community. The establishment of Bethlehem House, Bethlehem House is similar to um, Jane Adams's Hull House, a place where one women primarily could go to learn the skills um, uh, um, that would transition them into life in that area, but also learn skills that could help them improve the certain uh, social services that were needed within the uh, Nashville community. So the skills became necessary when in 1919 there was a fire and this fire took place because a, a young child was careless with um, matches or something. And he ended up burning a lot um, across street from his home. And the fire eventually grew to such an extent that uh, a couple of blocks were burned to the ground in order to, and the only people, well, not the only people, but the primary group that was best suited to collect data, to develop social policy, to address the fire were George Edmund Haynes's Fisk University sociology students. They began to take what they were learning in the classroom and employ those to help the residents of East Nashville. And this was a community that was largely white, largely middle-class to upper-class, wealthy community. And this was an example of the, the interracial cooperation between the two, something that Fisk uh, has and still Um, promotes proudly as being a space that can bring the races together, which was important to them or is important to them. I worked at Fisk for a couple of years um, and that's something that they encourage and promote um, daily actually. So it's important that at places like Fisk, students are not only taught abstract theory, but they are taught to use those theories, use those skills, use those concepts in the everyday world. And the Nashville fire um, is a great example of that.
0: Great. And then in terms of Howard University, um, one of the figures that you uh, single out is, is Kelly Miller um, and uh, often seen as a marginal figure. So what can you tell us about um, sociology at Howard and and um, Miller's role there? Mm-hmm.
1: Miller is significant because he is the one who basically established the department and he laid the foundation uh, for what is, unfortunately, the only doctoral program in sociology at HBCU in the country today. I believe in years past, Atlanta University had one and maybe a couple of other schools. But again, unfortunately, there's only one, and that is Howard University. And Howard University is uniquely situated to be the leader In the advance of what I call black sociology, they are, if I'm not mistaken, the only institution in the country that receives federal monies and they refer to themselves as the nation's university. So it is vitally important that Howard University, then later under the leadership of E. Franklin Frazier, has a substantial seat at the sociological table. Frazier, as we know, was the first African American president of the American Sociological Association. Um, he, he did that from the perch of Howard University. And the most important fact uh, regarding their significance is the infrastructure. Unlike Atlanta University, I'm like Tuskegee, and I'm like 99% of the other HBCUs. They had adequate resources, they had the physical plant to engage in substantive quality uh sociological studies. But one of the things I lament is they did not wield their power in ways that I believe uh, were sufficiently um, advantageous to the black community. I just wonder had Du Bois, uh, who was turned down for a job by Howard, <laughs> actually, um, had Du Bois access to those resources, how much stronger his studies that he conducted at Atlanta would be, Uh, would he have been given the proper recognition from that platform, from the nation's institution of higher learning? Um, But, you know, for those reasons, Howard is very significant. And I hope that at some point they will embrace this idea of black sociology uh, in today's time and push a curriculum that is um, more diverse than what one would find at a regular Doctoral program,
0: absolutely. And um, well, I just had a couple more questions for you, but I think that that's a great point. Um, thinking about the end of your book, which in- includes recommendations for teachers of sociology and a, a reading list of you know to think about uh, the history of Black sociology. Um, so I, I encourage listeners to to check that out. If you know if you're interested in, in this history to Check out that list, right? Read these recommendations. Because uh, I, I do think that we need to rethink how sociology and especially the history of sociology is, is taught, um, given all the research you've done in this book. Um, but uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to first ask you if you want to say anything else about your book, about because um, one thing we didn't talk too much about is um, what you call the golden age of black sociology from 1930 to 1960. Um, so, I mean, you obviously talked about Frazier and, and becoming uh, ASA president, but um, was there anything else about the golden age of black sociology that you wanted to speak on?
1: Well, just the idea that, and, and I, I try to, I go out of my way in the book, try not to be um, judgmental, in terms of the career choices that individuals made but that with the onset of desegregation that led to the dark age of black sociology and you have uh, top-tier scholars who once were forced because of segregation to work at kentucky state or fort valley or delaware state or any other number of historically black colleges but now the doors were open to them to work anywhere they wanted in the country uh, for higher salaries, more resources. You know, it's hard to begrudge someone that. But the golden age of black sociology, you know, when you had Frazier at Howard, Du Bois' return to Atlanta University, um, Charles S. Johnson doing their wonderful work with the Race Relations Institute at Fisk. That was a period that saw uh, the birthing of the really the first generation of black sociologists. And many of those individuals are now entering retirement. Well, they entered retirement maybe five, ten years ago, but that's the era within which this first generation emerged. They were influenced by uh, those persons. Um, a former mentor of mine was a student um, of Charles S. Johnson, uh, John Mollen Jr., who passed away some years ago. Uh, and we, I would sit at his knee, and he would give me these stories about Charles Johnson and, and all the things he would. Uh, do on campus and how he was just so revered and loved by everyone. And as a person who loves the South, as a person who loves historically black colleges and universities, I attended one for my first two years um, out of high school. I um, am saddened that um, the type of production uh, that was coming from these schools has ceased to the degree um, that it did uh, many many moons ago, um, but yeah, the uh, the golden age is something that I'm hoping we can get back to if we can have the appropriate resources for these individuals at HBCUs.
0: Yeah, and I think you make such a great case for that here. Um, like I said, especially at the uh, in the conclusion of your book, and you also discuss Black sociology in the context of of Black studies. Um, Is there anything else about this book that you want to talk about? Anything in terms of thinking about the implications of this history for today's audience?
1: Well, really, um, I think the important part of this book, you know, what I really say without saying it is this is what real sociology should look like. Again, not simply one's engagement in research just to get an AJS article or ASR article, but to engage in research that really and positively impacts a group of people. That is what the discipline should be used for. That is what black sociology is. And that should be the big takeaway, that if you are going to engage in black sociology specifically, but sociology in general, it should be with that aim and not necessarily to come up with these abstract theories about life and social phenomenon that don't really help anyone except maybe uh, one's um, uh, feeling of self, that we should really do the work for the people to make an impact. And that's what the book basically is about.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, before we go, I just wanted to know, What's next on your list? What do you have planned for your uh, latest projects?
1: Well, I've mentioned several times that I am a son of the South. I love the South. I have much pride about the South. I have now mined all of the data on Atlanta University and HBCU sociology. So I'm going to take on another challenge. Um, Again, I, I am sensitive to the idea that in sociology, all the wonderful accomplishments, everything that's worthwhile emerged either out of the Midwest or the Northeast. So my next book that I'm working on now examines the contributions of various and select schools of sociology early, well, early departments of sociology to the discipline um, to counter this idea that Southern sociologists, white and black, made little to no contributions. So I'm going to reclaim the South in large um, and show them, uh, show the discipline what we um, have done.
0: Excellent. Well, that sounds like such a great project, um, a great continuation of this recovering of this lost history, um, overshadowed history, or marginalized. Um, so I pre- really appreciate you talking with us today. I I definitely enjoy talking with you and um, take care.